I want to call your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll read beginning at verse 12. Paul gives us something of an autobiographical insight here into how he looked at himself in terms of the grace of God. 1 Timothy 1.12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, <clears throat> who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in telling a little bit of his own story, his own conversion, is driven to a point of once again praising and worshiping God. And he writes it down here in verse 17. It's marvelous. This message is tied in somewhat with the study in the 10 o'clock hour this morning on sanctification. And you'll see the connection here as we proceed. But one of the emphases in that paragraph is on spiritual warfare, the Christian warfare. And the whole subject of sanctification in our daily walk with the Lord and in this world and through this life. When God saved Saul of Tarsus, he saved the chief of sinners. At least that was Saul's view of it. That was his view of it here in his more mature years, having walked for a long time with Christ, he says, Christ saved the number one sinner. And he says, the Lord did this so that I would be an example of God's mercy and grace 
a pattern to all those who come to Christ after my time, that they would look at me as the greatest example of God's mercy imaginable. And he makes this, this glorious, brief, comprehensive saying in verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come into the world to save the righteous. He came to save the unrighteous. The fact is there were none righteous. (laughs) And if there were, they wouldn't need to be saved. He came to save sinners. But then he says, I am chief of sinners. And we often comment when we read this verse about how that he speaks in the present tense. He's not talking about his past life as Saul of Tarsus. He's speaking of the present as Paul the Apostle. And he says, I am the number one sinner. And this is closer to the end of Paul's life, maybe a couple of years before his death, it seems that as long as he was on this earth, until he died and left this world, Paul saw himself as a sinner. A saved sinner, thank God. And of course, he says all of that here. He's, He's not saying I'm nothing but a sinner. I'm a saved sinner, a redeemed sinner. I've been brought to Christ. God was rich to give me faith and love and all the graces that I need. But the fact remains, I'm still a sinner. And the more godly that Paul became, the more conscious of his sin he became. The more his sin troubled him. We see him in that Romans 7 passage that we referred to this morning saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. He doesn't say, Oh, wretched man that I was. If he said that, we could understand that and and more easily accept that. Oh, wretched man that I am, or literally, I think it's just wretched man I but the present tense is implied there. And it's given here. I am chief. Each of us who are believers should think of ourselves as the chief of sinners. Each of us, as we grow in the grace of God, should be more conscious of sin now than at any point previously. Our sins now ought to trouble us more than the sins before we were saved. If we learn anything from this text, 
That is it. Paul continued to be repentant over his sins. It never ended. And so the principle that we draw here is simply this. Our sins as believers ought to trouble us more than the sins that we committed as unbelievers because the sins of a believer are in many ways worse than the sins of an unbeliever. Now, I know this is humbling, convicting, sobering uh, things to consider. But I want to give you nine reasons why the sins of a believer are worse than the sins of an unbeliever. And I'm condensing these from about 20 reasons that Richard Baxter gave many years ago. Number one, when a believer sins, he sins against a privileged relationship with God. And we can look at this in terms of the persons of the Trinity. The Father is now our Heavenly Father. When we were in a state of unbelief and in our sins, He was not our Heavenly Father like He is now. By His grace, He's given us new life. He's made us to be born again and He has adopted us into His family as His children. He is our Heavenly Father. To sin against a judge is a criminal act, but to sin against your father is beyond criminal. It's an insult. It's a personal injury. It hurts. It's painful. If a stranger comes up to you and insults you, you don't pay much attention. If the kid that lives across the street insults you, you just don't pay much attention. But when your own son or daughter insults you, that really hurts. And inasmuch as God is a father and we understand things in these terms, our sins offend him as believers more than they did as unbelievers. Think of the Son. We are united to Christ the Son by His love and by our faith. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says we are members of Christ. We, we belong to Him. There in Ephesians, we're members of His body. If our sins as enemies were a grief to Him, how much more now our sins as His friends, those that He has come into union with? What do you think offended Christ more? Peter's betrayal? I'm sorry, Judas' betrayal? Or Peter's denial? 
It had to be Peter's denial. Peter was in a relationship with Christ that Judas was not in. You might say Jesus expected it out of Judas, but he expected, or how shall we say, he had a right to expect better things out of Peter. Then in terms of the Holy Spirit, think of the privileged relationship with the Holy Spirit that a believer has. He personally indwells in us. The Father and Son dwell in us by the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, we read in Scripture. And we're told in the letter to the Ephesians not to grieve the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. As far as grieving the Holy Spirit is concerned... Is there any question that the the sins of believers grieve the Holy Spirit in a way that the sins of unbelievers don't? We never read of, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't be stated quite so uh, without exception, but the statement about not grieving the Holy Spirit is addressed to believers and not unbelievers. So, when we sin as believers, we sin against a privileged relationship with God. Secondly, we sin against more light, more knowledge of the truth. In our unconverted state, we sinned against some light and some conscience. But now, the glorious light of the gospel has shined into our hearts by God's revelation He has revealed himself. He's opened our eyes. And this light of knowledge has come into our heart. We have embraced the truth. We have confessed the truth. We are more conscious of the evil nature of sin now than we ever were before. And we protest against it and speak out against it often. We know the will of God revealed in Scripture. We know what it is to draw near to Him and to be in His presence and to pray to Him. We have taken His promises as our own. We we know the joys of obedience and the, the, the peace that comes by simple obedience to God. We have made our vows to Him as our Savior and covenanted with Him as our spouse, having professed it before witnesses in baptism and reiterated it at the Lord's table. And we sin. And when we do, we sin against much more light and knowledge and and even experience than we did when we were lost. The principle that Jesus laid out with regard to unbelievers in Luke 12 is that those that have more light deserve more stripes and those that have less light deserve lesser or fewer stripes Applying that principle in whatever way it it applies to believers, we can safely say 
it this way. When we sin, we deserve to be chastened severely by God because we don't sin out of ignorance. We sin against much light. Thirdly, we sin against distinguishing grace. And this overlaps somewhat. God's grace has made a difference in us. Out of the sheer goodness of His heart, He has put away our sins in Christ. He's canceled our guilt. He has translated us from darkness to light, from death to life. It would have been much easier for Him not to do this and to pass us by. It would have been easier for Him not to redeem anybody. I like to say this, it would have been easier for Him to to destroy this old world and create a whole new one rather than fix the one that was corrupted and broken. But he has at great expense to himself by his amazing grace pardoned us freely, justified us with the righteousness of Christ and we are indebted to him beyond calculation And yet we sin. What kind of thanks is that to him for all that he has done for us? We sin against his grace. We sin against his love. You know, the lost sin against God's command. The saved, when they sin, sin against privilege. If the lost are without excuse in their sin, as Romans 1 tells us, what good reason can we offer for our sin? We are doubly without excuse. And that leads us to number four. When we sin, we sin voluntarily. And we yield from a position of strength In our lost state, we were in a position of weakness. Slaves of sin is the way it's described there in Romans chapter 6. Slaves to sin. We obeyed sin because that's all we could do. And yes, we were willing servants of sin, but in another sense, that's all that we were able to do. But now we've been set free from that slavery, from that yoke. And now we're under bondage to Christ. We have a new master. Sin does not own us anymore. Thank God. But what that means is then when we sin, we do so not as slaves of sin, but as slaves of Christ. We are volunteering our services to sin. Let me just remind you here of the words of Romans 6. The the command is, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves, volunteer, offer yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. 
he goes on and, and builds on that whole slave relationship versus free man relationship in the remainder of that chapter. The sins of believers are worse than, or, or the sins of a believer are worse after conversion than before because after conversion we voluntarily yield from a position of strength. It's like a person that enlists in the army in the service of his country and yet cooperates with the enemy all the while. You know, we call that person a traitor. And every one of our sins is a treasonous act in itself. It goes against our nature. It goes against our Lord and owner. It goes against our conscience and better knowledge. It's out of character. That's how Paul argues against sin in a believer and to dissuade us from any known sinful action or commission or omission here in Romans chapter 6. In the fifth place, when we sin as a believer, we contradict our own hope of glory. We talk about how we long for heaven. It's in so many of our hymns. Almost every hymn has some line in it about longing to be with Christ in glory in one way or another. We long for heavenly glory and perfection. We want to be free from all sin. And yet we do that which is against the character of heaven and aligned with the character of hell. We reprove others for their sins and yet we do the same thing or at least something similar so often. You know, Paul, writing to the Romans, talks about the the inconsistency and the contradiction of the person who teaches another but doesn't teach himself and preaches that a man should not steal. He says, do you steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit idolatry or sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God. That was written to convict the lost. And yet, it still convicts us. And it doesn't take a lot of analysis to figure out and, and to see in, in one way or another every sin that we speak against and cry out against in others in some way if not outwardly then inwardly we're guilty of ourselves or something worse number six our sins are more dishonoring to God as believers than as unbelievers God's public honor hangs on his children more than on strangers. 
you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones used this illustration so uh, effectively and memorably. He said parents will be taking their their child to a birthday party or something like that and dropping them off, coming back to pick them up later. And they say to the little child, now, be on your good behavior. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. And there's a number of reasons for that instruction, but one of them is that at that stage in life, the child is a reflection of the parents. And the parents don't want to be embarrassed by the conduct of the child. And in a similar way, God's reputation hangs upon you and me in this world. He claims us as his children. He has given us these lofty titles of child, treasure, inheritance, peculiar people, his jewels, the apple of his eye, and so on. And as such, our sins in a state of grace bring greater shame to him than our sins in a state of sin and lostness. His reputation depends upon us, and our sins bring his good name into disrepute. Number seven, the sins of believers are more damaging to the lost than the sins of unbelievers. Now, unbelievers certainly encourage each other in sin and bring out the worst, we might say, in each other. But when an unbeliever sees a believer sinning, that to them is an encouragement. It is a permission to do the same and, of course, to do worse. They say if you want to know how a Christian should live Just ask your lost neighbor. He has a pretty good idea. (laughs) He at least has has some idea of, of how you ought to be living as a Christian. And when he sees you sin, he's hardened all the more in his own sin. He's encouraged all the more in his own sin. God, through the prophet Nathan, speaks to David in this way. David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah was especially grievous and damaging because it gave great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Because David claimed the Lord. How many lost people today hide behind the sins of Christians and in one way or another it comes down to this, you know, I'd go to church if there weren't so many hypocrites and so on. Well, of course, that's, that excuse will not stand on the judgment day. But we ought not to be giving that excuse or giving them any any encouragement in that excuse. May God help us. Lost people 
are much quicker to imitate our sin than to imitate our obedience to God. Some relatively small sin that we commit will be used as an excuse for much greater sins by those who are lost. Number eight, our sins as believers are more grievous to our fellow believers. As we observe one another and see sins in one another, we are affected. And while a mature saint may not be so much affected, a weaker saint, a young saint, may stumble greatly at our disobedience or even our callous unconcern. Paul addresses that in those passages on Christian liberty even. Our sins, not just taking liberties, but actual sins, grieve our fellow saints. It will lead others to pursue a similar or worse course, much as with unbelievers. Our sins harm the unity of our assembly and our testimony collectively to the world. And number nine, the sins of believers are more pleasing to Satan than the sins of unbelievers. And and this is just a sad and heartbreaking fact. Satan is happy to see any sin, no doubt. But he's especially happy to see a believer in Christ sinning. He has no greater trophy than that. You read the opening chapters of the book of Job and see that Job was Satan's coveted prize. If he could only get Job to sin, oh, how he would have boasted against God. Well, God preserved Job, at least from the worst sins and from blaspheming God's name. So Satan didn't get his trophy, but that was what he wanted. Christian friend, let us not hand the devil a trophy. Let's not give him an easy victory. And so these are nine reasons why the sins of believers are worse than the sins of unbelievers. And the sins of those who have come to Christ are worse than their sins before they came to Christ. Can we not say with Paul, O wretched man that I am? But as he goes on there in that Romans 7 passage, He flees to Christ and he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Thank God for deliverance from sin through our Savior. And so, in way of applying this here once again, let me just say a couple of things. Number one, we need to get a view of our own sin and be conscious of our own sin. We will not make much progress in sanctification until the sins of today deeply bother us and that we are conscious of them. And it may be not so much sins of commission as sins of omission sometimes. Are we convicted over our present sins? Let us not deny them. Let us not uh, or deny that we are sinners. Let us not just gloss over and rename them and reclassify them so that they are not really sins, but let us deal with them. And how do we deal with our sins? Well, I think one of the best short answers for that is found in the book of Proverbs, chapter 28, verse 13, that says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. We must confess and forsake our sins. You know, this message is not meant to be a heavy burden and, uh, you know, the bitter herbs. And the way that we keep it from that is by emphasizing the remedy, which is Christ, our Savior. We flee to Him. We confess our sins to Him. We forsake our sins for Him. And we seek His grace and strength to live in obedience. We might say it in this way, Lord, wash my feet today. You've washed me once and for all from my sins, but my feet get soiled walking through this world. Wash my feet this day. Cleanse me. Purify me. Give me strength not to continue in this course. May God help us. We will be tempted. We'll be tempted probably before the sun sets today. Let us remember these nine points, or let us remember even one of them, if that's the one that we need at the moment to stop us in any course of sin, that we might turn and walk in obedience instead. So we need to get a view of our sin, number one, and secondly, we need to get a view of our Savior. He is so patient. He is so forgiving. He tells us that we must forgive as He forgives. And He is so quick to forgive 
any soul that sincerely comes to Him. He is patient with us. He forbears with us. In spite of all of our sins against Him, for which there is no excuse, He continues to love us. With his everlasting love. He knew what he was getting. When he got you and me. And yet he determined. To purchase us. Nevertheless. With the price of his blood. He has pardoned our sin knowing that we wouldn't even appreciate it like we should. Oh, the love of Christ is beyond comprehension. He puts away more sin than we even recognize. And so let us love Him who loves us with such a love. And let us dread the thought of offending Him, insulting Him, injuring Him, returning evil for all the good that He has done for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do a thorough work in our hearts this day. That we would rejoice in your grace and in your redemption. And yet that we would not take lightly our own sins and our own current sins. Father, we desire to walk more holy, to be more sanctified. Help us then to recognize how evil our sin is and how common it is. Make us to know it so that we might turn from it. And give us a spirit of confession and forsaking of it thoroughly. Work in us, we pray. And help us to be good testimonies to one another and to those around us. Help us to be trophies of grace. For your sake and not trophies of sin for Satan. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together number 456. Conviction is not the goal. Conviction of sin is not the end.
that we're looking for. It is to draw near to Christ and find pardon, forgiveness, and victory in him.